My name is Justin Leach, and I'm the Director of College and Discipleship here at Center Church. And as we are going through the book of Ephesians, we find ourselves coming across this next passage that Patrick just read for us, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Uh, I will not have to do much to convince you of how applicable that this passage is to our context and world today. Uh, The theme that we are going to see in this passage is division and reconciliation. Uh, And just to uh, give you a quote, this is from an AP uh, series, Associated Press, a series they did on division in America. This was their introductory uh, quote for the series. This is what it says. In America, it's no longer just Republican versus Democrat or liberal versus conservative. It's the 1% versus the 99%, rural versus urban, white men against the world, climate doubters clash with believers, bathrooms have become battlefields, borders are battle lines, sex and race, faith and ethnicity, the melting pot seems to be boiling over. Right? And today we see that so clearly. Politically, we see this incredible division in our country. Half the country thinks Donald Trump is an incredible man of God, maybe, and the other half wants him impeached. Uh, the economic division is incredible. We saw in the past couple months... Uh, this college admission scandal where wealthy people are using their money to get their children ahead by bribing admissions within colleges. We see a racial division. Uh, we see just so much different division in our context today. So this passage it is so key for, un- for us to understand now. One word that is going to come out in this passage and in the book of Ephesians is the Greek word apolatrio. All right, apolatrio. And this is the word for alienate. All right, alienate. This word alienate occurs only three times in the Bible as a verb, two times in Ephesians, and once in a parallel passage in Colossians. Okay, the two times in Ephesians that it says is this. Uh, 4.18, it says that we are alienated from the life of God. So as people, we, because of our sin, uh, if we are not born again through Christ, we are alienated from God because of our sin, separated from him. But the other way this word is used is in this passage right here. It says that Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So what we see in this passage is, th- is this reality that different people and different groups alienate from one another, and this comes from the alienation uh, with God. All right, last week, Josh taught uh, through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which talks about how everyone, Jew and Gentile, every person in the whole world is separated from God because of sin, but God being rich in mercy reconciled us to God through Jesus Christ. What is happening in this passage, we have a therefore, is Paul is going to move from that application of theology, of salvation personally with God, to how that ought to impact us as people relating with one another. This idea of our vertical relationship with God impacting our horizontal relationship with other people is found commonly throughout all the Bible. It's not unique to here, right? In the great commandment, if you remember that one, Jesus tells uh, somebody, a scribe who comes up and asks him, what is the greatest commandment in all the Bible? Jesus says the great and number one commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. He says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, this vertical love of God is very closely tied to this horizontal love of others. Also, uh, it comes up in another place, 1 John 4. We see uh, the Apostle John saying that, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right, this idea of God's love towards us and the vertical restoration that God has so graciously given us in the cross ought to impact the relationships that we have with people here today. So what we're going to see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and it breaks down really well for us and very clearly, is that we have a problem in the first couple of verses, and that problem is alienation. 
All right, we have a problem, it's alienation. Second, we're going to see Paul's solution. All right, and that solution is reconciliation. But he doesn't just leave us with the solution. He's going to finish off by showing us what the result of a right understanding of those things is, and that is one church. All right, so we've got a problem, alienation. We've got the solution, reconciliation. And we have the result, one church. What we're going to see in this passage is at the center of everything, as we're walking through this outline that Paul gives to us and apply it to ourselves today and understand what Jesus' salvation means for us in our context, is that Jesus is going to be at the center of everything. In this passage, as the solution, the one being glorified, the one bringing people together, Jesus is at the center. True reconciliation, that what we're going to see, true reconciliation between different people and different people groups will only come through Jesus. And will only come through the message of the gospel. So before we jump in uh, to looking through uh, the text, I just want to talk a little bit more about how that outline makes it very clear for us. So uh, if you look in verse 11, uh, you see, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. All right, it's talking about a past reality. The Gentiles have now been brought into the church through faith. He is writing this letter to a church where there are both Jews and Gentiles present. And he is saying, remember that at one time you were alienated. And then it moves forward a couple of verses. I'll skip to kind of paraphrase. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you were once alienated, but now you, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And at the end, we have consequently, or so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. So what we're going to do is work through that process, right? We've got this problem. There's alienation. There's division. We've got a solution that the blood of Jesus, Jesus Christ, has reconciled people together through the gospel. And the result of that is a new family, a new community, a new race of people who are under the blood of Christ, loving and worshiping Jesus together and having a common unity that overcomes any kind of division that the world can bring up. So that's what we're going to see today. First, uh, we will jump into looking at the problem. All right, the problem, alienation. Uh, Jew and Gentile division is something that we probably cannot get our heads around quite fully today. But throughout the Bible, it is a massive issue. And as we look at the first century, even outside of the Bible, it is very clear that Jew-Gentile division is a harsh, violent, and angry division between two groups of people on on a number of different levels. Just throughout this passage, we have name-calling, right? They say one is calling them the uncircumcision, the other is the circumcision. These are names, just kind of mean, crude names they're calling each other based on different differences that they have. Uh, We see the Gentiles are alienated. They're far off. That Jesus has to come and make peace. Jesus has to come and through his death kill active hostility. There is just great division all throughout this passage between Jew and Gentile that we see is a reality. Uh, This uh, is incredibly clear as I was reading some of the uh, just history behind this division. Um, there's a temple at the time Paul is writing this, le- uh, this letter in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a massive temple that the Jews went and worshipped at, and there is about a 10-foot wall that separates what's called the court of the Gentiles from the temple proper where uh, the Jewish people went to meet with God. Uh, and this wall so, so I guess we first say this is not just like sociological or subtle division and animosity between Jews and Gentiles. We have a literal wall that's separating them from one another. And on this wall, not just is it keeping people out, but there's a, a plaque that was discovered in 1871 by some archaeologists. And this is what the, Gen- or the Jewish people put up on the wall uh, to warn the Gentiles from coming through. This is what it says. No stranger, read Gentile, is to enter within the barrier round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. 
right? The Jewish people have this wall around there, the access to the one true God with the threat of death for anyone who would enter upon it. It didn't stop there, though. The, Jew, the Jews commonly spoke of the Gentiles at different periods of their history as fuels for the fire of hell, okay? They spoke um, of, th- this is a phrase that is used at a couple different times in some old literature from Jewish rabbis, uh, the best of serpents crush, the best of Gentiles kill, right? There's harsh, violent animosity. There's even at different time periods uh, laws against Jewish people serving a, a, a Gentile mother as she is in birth because you would be seen as aiding another Gentile coming into this earth, coming into the world. Right? There's harsh animosity between these two groups. But before that, we just say that the Jewish people were all on the wrong side. The Gentiles were not much better. A Gentile in the scripture and the way the word is used is just any person that is not uh, Jewish. So this includes the Romans and the Greeks are probably two big ones that are in the context of the book of Ephesians. And uh, these people, again, were not much better. Plato himself said that uh, non-Greeks were by nature his enemy. Anyone who did not share his ethnicity, he saw as by nature his enemy. That's the Plato that we read about and learn about philosophy from. And then Livy, a Roman historian, he confirmed that uh, expression by saying uh, the Greeks waged truceless war against other races who they call barbarians. Right? The Greeks and the Romans... Uh, subjected, dominated, went on conquest, and uh, put other races into slavery because they were by nature their enemies. Uh, To Jews, the Gentiles were unclean dogs. And to Gentiles, the Jews were just another race of people to be subjected and to put into slavery to be conquered. There are certainly a number of different elements to this division between these people. We have cultural division, right? These groups of people have different food, that they eat and enjoy or find clean and unclean. These groups of people have different traditions that they uh, recognize, different holidays that they celebrate. They speak different languages or maybe speak similar languages but prefer different languages. There are deep cultural divides that over time led to animosity and uh, just uh, violence towards one another. There's religious divides or there's belief about how we access to God. Israel the Jews had access to the one true God through the Old Testament sacrificial system that we'll talk some about as we go. And the Romans and the Greeks had their own set of uh, gods and their own religions that they were following. And that created this animosity. Uh, It's racial. The Jewish people said that we have the blood of Abraham coursing through our veins. And because we are children of him, because we are part of this community, we are uh, better. The Romans and the Greeks thought the exact same thing as we just saw that Plato Plato, uh, said. Both of these groups were divided by so many different things, cultural things, religious things, racial things, so many other areas of division that we could talk about. But what Ephesians 2 is going to help us see is that the division is primarily spiritual. All right? Every division between groups of people is going to come first from spiritual division, spiritual separation, and spiritual alienation, and not these secondary things. Because of our spiritual alienation with God, then out of these different things, we are going to have horizontal alienation with other people. And that's going to be pointed out to us in Ephesians uh, 2, verses 11 and 12. I'll read them for us real quick again. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's primarily, primarily spiritual, and we see it uh, this way. Um, the, the Gentiles are far from God. All right, in those two verses, we see that the Gentiles are far from God. We see a five-fold five list of why they are far from God. We see that they are separated from Christ. We see that they are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They are Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. Christless because they have no idea that they have a need of a Messiah or that a Messiah is coming. Right? They are friendless or stateless uh, because God worked through the theocracy of Israel, blessing them and promising to be a blessing through them. So they're stateless and friendless, aliens to Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. They have no idea what God is going to do through Israel to bless the world. And they are just completely alienated from that with no access. And they are hopeless and they are godless. Not that they were atheists because almost the entire world believed in a different form of deity or God back then, but they did not have access to the one true God. And we know that all other gods are not real. They are not uh, in any way comparable to the God of the Bible. They are uh, in no way a threat to him in any such way. And there's no hope of this Messiah that is coming. The Gentiles are very far from the true God of the Bible. They have no access to him. They have no hope in him. They have no awareness of need for him. They have no idea that he is coming. Uh, and they have no idea that the Messiah is for them. They are far, far, far from God. But again, before we think that the problem is all in the Gentiles and the Jews have it together... The Jews, although they may not be far from God in the same way as the Gentiles, the Jews misunderstood God. All right? The Jews just completely misunderstood God. There are so many benefits that the Jewish people had because of their special relationship with God. God chose them. He called them to be a people for his glory that he was going to shape and that he was going to bless the world through. But rather than realizing the benefits and the privileges that, that they had because of a relationship with God, which is the knowledge of the scriptures and God speaking to them and telling them about the coming Messiah, they in pride and arrogance rejected God. Right? We see a hint of that in verses 11 and 12 when it says that their circumcision, circumcision is just made in the flesh by hands. The Bible tells us that a true Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart. Not just an outward physical affiliation with God's people, but their inward heart has been changed through faith in Christ where they love and worship and treasure him. And what Paul is saying here is this, this circumcision in the flesh made by hands is, is nothing. They had this access to God, but they didn't take advantage of it. In fact, when God, come, when God came and Jesus came, instead of realizing who it was and loving and worshiping and following him wherever he went, they killed him and they put him on a cross. Right? The Gentiles were far from God, but the Jews completely misunderstood God in their heart and heart, and they were far from him too. This alienation between one another came because they both groups, both Jew and Gentile, were alienated from God. How does that work? Right? We all boast in something. We all look to take pride in something. As God's creation, we were meant to take pride and boast in the glory of our God, in the character of our God, in the love of our God that he has for us. We were meant to boast and to enjoy that and to be unified as people across all different classes and races and ethnicities and backgrounds. We were meant to be unified in that glorifying, enjoying, and loving and worshiping God. But when that alienation with God happens because of sin, we start turning to anything else that we can have, that we can boast in. 
we start turning to our culture, we start turning to our race, we start turning to our education status, we start turning to, turning to uh, the job that we have or how much money we make, and we boast in these different things, and we elevate ourselves and the people that fit into our group, and we put down others, and division occurs. This alienation that happens horizontally is primarily born out of an alienation that has happened vertically. Right? And we have to know that and we have to remember that because if we look for solutions that are just going to solve the horizontal problem without looking for a solution that solves the vertical problem, we are never going to get to the source. This prideful boasting because of our alienation with God leads to this horizontal alienation with others. Alienation is a heart, alienation of groups, division between groups is a heart issue and we have to know that and we have to believe that. We have to see that the scripture teaches that before we can really deal with it and move forward in loving one another in a right response to the way that God has loved us. So how have we seen that happen? Right? We have seen this alienation of groups towards one another happen in just horrendous ways throughout the history of the world uh, and throughout uh, recent history in our country and even in the modern day. We see it in massive ways, religiously, with religious persecution. We see it in culturally with colonialism and imperialism. And we see it racially in, in racism, right? We see it in all of these massive ways. But I am going to assume that most of us in this room are probably not walking around as colonialists, imperialists, racists, or persecuting others for their religions. Um, not that that is beyond any of us getting there, but I do know that there are ways that we have preference in our hearts towards other group of people. Again, it may not be based on race. It may not be based on culture. It may not be based on religion, as this has happened in big and massive ways throughout history. But this most definitely happens in at least subtle ways in all of our hearts. Because we have a broken relationship with God at times. Even if we have been bought by the blood of Jesus and we're followers of him, we have areas of our heart that are still questioning that, not fully assured of that, and we turn to other ways and uh, boast in ourselves. So again, maybe these are more subtle ways. Maybe it's the way that people carry themselves. Maybe it's the way that people speak. Again, the type of job that people have or how much money they make. Maybe there are little other ways that we put our uh, moralized, the benefits that we have, and then divide ourselves from other groups. Right? And that is the core of this alienation that ends in violence way down the line. Uh, but it comes from that horizontal alienation that we have with God. All of the horizontal alienation, all of the division that we experience with other people comes primarily from our separation from God. And we see that in these first couple of verses. Thankfully, though, the Bible does not leave us with this alienation and this division uh, without some hope to overcome that, to uh, develop uh, healthy uh, and God-glorifying relationships with one another. The problem is alienation, but there is a solution that the Bible offers. And the, the solution that the Bible offers is reconciliation. Uh, we have seen the world throw a number of different solutions at the issue of division between people. A number of different solutions. Two that came to mind as I was thinking through this. Uh, one would be intellectual, right? We think if we educate people or if we de develop a new philosophy, then we will be able to, through that, reconcile people together in a way that is lasting and true and, uh, and heals the brokenness in the world. It's through education, Right? And education at its best is going to heal certain divides for a time, but likely will just create divides in other areas. 
right? Education of the civil rights movement in a lot of ways has, done a, has gone a significant amount in healing relations from slavery in the United States to understanding what has happened and what people have been through, right? It has done a long thing, but it creates divisions in other areas, uh, politically, and there's uh, all other things that flow from that. Education is good and it is helpful, but it is not going to be the true and lasting reconciliation that the Bible says can come only through Jesus. Another one, it would be political, right? Uh, this is what we think of with the Romans and the Greeks. They just conquer people and put them in their, uh, their culture, assimilate them, bring them in, and uh, make everything kind of smoothed over through that, right? Again, that might happen for a time. There might be a time that people come in and submit to being conquered, but we know that over time, as we've seen again and again throughout the history of the world, that's not going to last. There is no way for true reconciliation to, for people to be forced into a new culture to assimilate and to uh, have true, lasting reconciliation between people. But the Bible, again, says if you're doing those things, you, what you're doing is going after these uh, horizontal issues without dealing with the vertical issue with God. Because if you deal with that alienation with God in people's hearts, then the necessary and guaranteed overflow of that love of God will be a love for other people that creates genuine reconciliation with others. So we see this in verses 13 through 18 in chapter 2. I'll read those for us. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If you grew up in Sunday school and I was to ask you this question, you would know the answer. Uh, who is the hero of reconciling divided groups? Jesus, right? Your Sunday school answer. We know that's the right answer. If you read these five or six verses, Jesus' name is sprinkled throughout there, and I'll say, hey, this recon- there's the d- intense animosity between these two groups. Who's the hero? We read that passage, we say, Jesus, right? It seems like a clear, quick answer that Jesus heals these groups. But what exactly has Jesus done, and how has he accomplished this horizontal reconciliation between two groups that are very divided. In this passage, we're going to see pretty clearly uh, what he has done for us and the incredible power that his death has to reconcile groups together. So what we see here, Jesus is our peace, and that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. All right, there is a dividing wall of hostility between groups of people and between us and God, and what we are going to see is what has Jesus done exactly? What has Jesus done to break, in, break down this wall of hostility? And in this passage, we'll see very clearly what that is. The first thing that we see verses 14 and 15, is that he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. All right, so how did he break down the wall of hostility? He did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. All right, there's two distinct ways that Jesus has broken down this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. All right, the first one is this. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people had a set of uh, cultural and religious practices that God gave them to relate to him as a picture of the coming Messiah. 
All right, so they had this Old Testament sacrificial system where they offered uh, bulls and goats and made these sacrifices and offerings to God uh, to be made right with him. And the purpose of that sacrificial system was to express their faith in God and to follow and obey him, but also to paint a picture for them of the Messiah that they would one day need to ultimately come and replace the sacrificial system once and for all. So in Jesus' death, one way that he tears down the dividing wall of hostility is by fulfilling all of the regulations of the ceremonial law of the Jewish people. All right, they have this very distinct culture, these distinct practices and foods and habits from the rest of the world, and those distinctions create a barrier of hostility, creates a separate culture, creates a lack of trust and confusion between two groups of people, and over time gets, turns into name-calling, and uh, again, this animosity that has come up. What Jesus has done in, in getting rid of the ceremonial requirements of the law is uh, allowed all people to come to him in the same way. So now there is no distinction in that, but the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down because Jesus in his death was the fulfillment of the picture of the ceremonial laws that were there. Right? So now those ceremonial regulations are no longer needed for the Jewish people or for the Gentile people to get to God because the picture is no longer needed because the real substance has come and has accomplished his work. So the dividing wall of hostility that was all of these regulations that made the Jewish people very distinct from the Gentiles has been torn down. So that is one way that the, uh, Jesus has abolished the law of commandments as expressed in ordinances. Another way that Jesus has abolished that law is that he has taken out the condemnation of the moral law. Right For the Jewish people, The salvation was always by God's grace through faith. But what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection was make it explicitly clear that salvation was never actually by the blood of rams and goats, but it was always by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that there was a new way to get saved, but it was made explicitly clear that the one way to be saved through faith in the Messiah was the only way always to be saved. Therefore, uh, failure to live up to this moral law of the Ten Commandments and the law that God gives uh, is no longer uh, the way that we uh, fail God and don't live up to him and aren't accepted by him. But through faith in Christ, it is made explicitly clear through Christ's death that a failure in the moral law, there is still hope for us through faith in Christ and receiving the forgiveness of sins. So now both Jew and Gentile is explicitly clear that they must go through faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ to be accepted by God. There is not a way that the Jewish people can be proud and somehow trick themselves into thinking that through their law keeping they're accepted by God. And there is not the way for the Romans and the Greeks, the Gentiles, to look at the Jews and to then elevate their own system of religious acceptance before God. But God says in Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There is one way to God. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is made explicitly clear through his death and resurrection that he fulfilled the law on our behalf, that through faith in him, we receive his perfect law keeping and we are accepted by God. There's no two different ways, but the dividing wall of hostility is broke down. So we are all standing at the same uh, ground, at the same level before God. And there's no reason for that hostility anymore. Jesus in his life has torn down that wall of hostility. Everyone comes to God through faith. So that's what he did. That's the first thing that he did. The second thing that he did was he created a new humanity. All right, he created a brand new humanity. First, he, broke, he abolished the law of commandments, expressing ordinances, and did that. The second thing he did in, in his uh, death is that he created a new humanity. It says uh, this in verses 14 and 15. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. All right, we see he's made us both one. He has made one new man in place of the two. What the Bible teaches, what people have mentioned all throughout history that are scholars of the Bible, is that what Jesus has done in the gospel is created a new humanity. He has created a new race of people. He has created a new group or type of people, a new class of people. And this group of people have a unifying factor in that they are born of God that is deeper than any dividing factor uh, ought to be. All right, there's a, a bishop, a John Reed, who's a, who's a bishop in the church in Australia, and he used to drive a school bus. And uh, the story of, uh, that he tells goes uh, like this. So he's driving a school bus. He's got Aborigine kids in Australia, which um, is the, uh, the um, native population of Australia there. Uh, and then he has some white kids on the school bus. He drives both of them to school. And uh, as they are growing up in their culture, there's a lot of, aboni- uh, a lot of uh, animosity between the Aborigine kids and, and the Aborigine uh, people and then the white settlers who are coming into Australia. And this flows into the kids' lives too. And on the bus, they treat each other poorly. They sit separated. They make fun of each other. And they also just hang out in their own groups. All right, so one day he hears one of the ringleaders for the white kids and the ringleader for the white kids is causing some division, making fun of the Aborigine for the way they say a word. And he says, hey, hey, um, buddy, what, what color are you? And the kid says, white. And he says, no, no, we're going to try to change this up. You're green. All right, all the white kids, you're green. So he goes with that. A couple minutes later, he hears one of the Aborigine kids uh, also causing division, causing some strife. And uh, he says something to him, hey, what, what color are you? What color are you? And the boy says, I'm black. And the uh, bus driver says, no, 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 you're green. All right, you're all green. You're all the same colors. You can get along. And for about five minutes, the kids are chewing on this, maybe pretending they're the same color. They think it's kind of fun. And it seems like things are going well. He figured out how to heal race relations in the world. He just, he, he figured it all out. Um, but then about five minutes later, he heard at the back of the bus one kid say, okay, all the light green on the left and dark green on the right. Right? He realized, he realized something really good. We need a new race of people. Right? There are just distinctions that we're not going to overcome sometimes between, and it's not always race, there's uh, inequality and many other ways that we deal with. Um, But we need a new race of people. The thing is, he just didn't have the power to make it a reality. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus Christ did have the power to make that a reality. He has, in his death and resurrection, created a new race of people. And that race of people is those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have said, my primary identification as a race or a social status class nationality is secondary now, not gone, secondary, and my primary race that unifies me, even with my differences, is that I have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and I'm a child of God. Right? Bishop John Green had a good idea, but he didn't have the power to carry it out, whereas Jesus had the power to create a new race, a race of people who are God's children. Right, and because of this, we, um, one thing that you may hear, and I think this is, we're kind of moving past this, is the idea of color blindness, right? This idea that I'm not, I don't see color, I see, I see everybody is the same in my eyes. Um, and I think that is not helpful exactly because of this, right? The Bible says in Revelation 7 that every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be worshiping around the throne. 
There'd probably be a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different types of singing. We'll have a bunch of like people like this and you know, some people like this. It's going to be all over the place. So what the Bible says is not, is not say, hey, just pretend that everybody's the same and white, like whitewash everything and push it all over. But it says that having a new deeper race actually frees us instead of to find division because of our differences to celebrate our differences, to see different aspects of God's character that come out in our differences. In every single culture, in every single race, in every single class, there are going to be elements of who we are created in those divisions that are glorifying to God, and there are going to be elements that are uh, in the world not glorifying to God, right? There's going to be things that, that help us to know God more deeply, and there's going to be things about our culture and the way that we are because of our groups that limit the way that we understand God and are not an accurate representation of him. When we come together as the body of Christ with people from all different groups, all different styles, jocks, nerds, poor, rich, black, white, um, all of it, we get to see all of the different benefits of who God is based on these different cultures, right? We don't go colorblind, but we go to enjoy now because of our new unifying race, the different uh, offerings that each of our cultures and backgrounds and traditions have uh, to glorify God. He created a new humanity, a new race. Jesus Christ is powerful. In his death, there is incredible power. In his blood, there is incredible power. And in this power, he had the power to create a new race that would overcome our differences. Last, he, uh, he reconciled humanity to God. So he created a new humanity, reconciled humanity with one another. But he also reconciled humanity to God, dealing with that primary issue of our alienation vertically. We see this in verses 16 to 18. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Reconcile us both to God. Preach peace to those far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near. We both have access. Both Jew and Greek have this common salvation. They have this common confession. um, And that flattens our boasting. The confession of this new race of people who are followers of Jesus Christ. This is our confession. I am a sinner. So wicked, so nasty, that God himself had to come and die for me. But God loved me so much that he did that for me and gave me the chance through faith to be reconciled to God as a free gift. He offers that to us. That flattens our boasting. Right? We can no longer look on other people and other groups and look down on them, but we say, I'm a sinner so bad that God himself had to die for me. How can I look down on other people? One of my favorite quotes is a guy talking about sharing the gospel with others that gets at this idea. And he says, when we talk about Jesus with others, what we are is not, you know, like a rich person helping a poor person out, but primarily what we're more like is a beggar telling another beggar where he found some bread. Right? The gospel of Jesus Christ the way that we have both been reconciled to God, both Jew who were close, both Gentile who were far off, both reconciled to God through the cross, flattens any pride or boasting that we could have because we both have access to God in the same way. There's no cultural, racial, economic, sociological, or religious backgrounds that can defeat reconciliation in Christ because there's one way to God. We all have one problem, alienation from God, and there's one solution, Jesus Christ, and that flattens our boasting in front of one another flattens our boasting. 
all three of these ideas, that he abolished the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he created a new humanity, and that he reconciled us as humanity to God, they get at this idea that he himself is our peace, right? He himself is our peace. The passage says that a couple of times. This whole section describes why Jesus is called our peace with God through giving himself on the cross for us that we might be reconciled to God through forgiveness and with one another. He tore down anything that would divide us together so that in Christ, the church can be a family together, united above any differences that we might have. Many people have many different answers for reconciliations between groups, right? Intellectual, uh, political, different ways to solve it. But the Bible is very clear. The Bible is very clear, and we as Christians believe the Bible, that the only way for true reconciliation is through Jesus Christ. The only way that two people, even in the same group and same culture, can be reconciled to one another to really truly love one another out of a selfless heart is through Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches us, and this is what we must cling to. The hope for reconciliation with God for eternity is Jesus Christ. But the hope for reconciliation among people in a beautiful, God-glorifying way today is people believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, being reconciled to God, and therefore reconciled with one another. Paul does not stop there with this solution of reconciliation, but he actually tells us what the outcome of this solution should be. And this is the result. One church. So in verses 19 through 22, we see this result, which is one church. Let's start in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Summarizing where we've gone so far, he says, Therefore, remember that you were alienated. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, right, he reminds him, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens like you were, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. This, um, what we see is that you are no longer what you once were. You are no longer alienated from God's family, but you are uh, brought in to God's people. We see three word pictures about what the church is as an overflow of this reconciling Jesus who has saved us. Three word pictures. First, we are one kingdom. All right, one kingdom. And we get that from fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. As the church, regardless of who we are, we are fellow citizens of one kingdom with Christ as our king. All right, and that idea, uh, I think the, the, the good way to think through this is we are operating, all of us, no matter where we come from, what religious background we are, no matter how young or how old in the faith we are, we are operating in the kingdom of God with birth certificates and social security cards, not with passports. All right, we belong here, not because of our background that gains us entry, uh, but because God himself has given us full access to him. There is no division in classes among Christians based on position, based on age, based on uh, class or background, but every Christian is exactly equal in worth and value before God because of the cross, right? In the citizenship of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, we have birth certificates. We have social security cards, not passports or immigration status. We are here to stay because of what Jesus has done. We are a kingdom under King Jesus. So first, we have one kingdom that the one church is. Second, we're one family. Uh, It says that we're members of the household of God. 
the most common word used in the New Testament for the way that Christians uh, interact with one another is siblings, brothers and sisters, brothers, all under uh, God as father, right? We interact with one another as siblings, brought into the family, adopted, and given full status in the family, right? The prodigal son is a story of this. One son stays and does great. His religious background would be obedience and the good kid growing up and doing the right thing. The other son goes off and blows all the money on prostitutes and works with pigs, which is a terrible thing in Jewish culture because they are unclean and comes back. They have different backgrounds, different cultures, but they are both given by God's grace full access into the family of God. Not a distinct status, but welcomed back by faith. We are siblings, members of the same family, of the household of God with God as Father. And the last one is one temple. One temple. It says you are being built together, right? You are being built together. The whole verse says, in whom the whole structure are built, the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the foundation of the apostles and prophets, for us that's the New Testament scriptures, right? There are these people that are followers of Jesus that uh, brought Jesus' teaching to us through the scriptures. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the one that holds it all together. If you take him out of the church, it all falls apart. It's the one that gives us stability and structure. Jesus is the head, the cornerstone. We cannot take him out or we are no longer the church. It crumbles. But we are being built together as the temple of the Lord. And the temple is where God's presence dwelt. And in this passage, it tells us that's where God's spirit dwelt. And so we as the church, from all different kinds of people, are building this new temple. Right In the Old Testament, the temple was one ethnicity, one religion, one race, one culture. It was the Jewish people. The new temple that is being built is a temple that has people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. It being built together for a, to be a dwelling place for God by his spirit. There is a beautiful, incredible picture of this, as I mentioned before in Revelation 7, where people from every uh, tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping around the throne of God, and God's spirit is dwelling there. And we get to be that church now in a very real way, the, God, the spirit of God dwelling among us. The result of what Jesus has done to reconcile people through his body, uh, to attack the problem of this alienation and division, is uh, one church that we are all coming together in now. So what does this mean? What does this mean uh, for us? First, uh, as I was thinking through this application, I think the number one thing this means for us that we need to fight to get to in our guts is lament. Lament. For whatever reasons um, that we don't need to get into now because these are, this is not a sociological, historical class, our churches, <clears throat> followers of Jesus, and even within our church, there is not this perfect vision of what we one day will experience perfectly and can increasingly experience now with unity between all different kinds of people does not happen perfectly now. And I know there can be tons of different explanations for that, and there's tons of different research, and people disagreeing even on why that is. I don't want to get into that. But I, what I want to say is as the people of God, we can realize that we, there, we can be better with this. We can glorify God more fully. There is room to advance in bringing people in and being more unified as the body of Christ together. So the place that we can start is lament. We can say, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God, this is not the way that we wish it would be. God, we have no idea how to tackle a problem this big. We have no idea where to start, but we can say that we wish it was different. 
Now, we can say it breaks our heart that there is division. We can say that it breaks our heart that other brothers and sisters in Christ experience division. Even if we have fundamental disagreement on what's going on, we can have our hearts sad that it's not the way it's meant to be. We can have our hearts sad that it's not what we're going to one day experience in Revelation 7 when Jesus comes back. And we can pray and we can ask God to change that, even if we don't know where to start and even if we don't know uh, how to make that work. So we need to start with lament, right? Lament is healthy. Us saying, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We are not where we one day will be in the fullness of joy that you have for us in the full reconciliation with other people and with you. Uh, But we are looking forward to that day and we ask that you would make it come sooner. So we can lament. I think this is an area where we really can lament and it really should grieve our hearts that we see division and harsh division in the church. Um, We can't overlook this and simplify it because sometimes there is okay reasons for division in the church, right? Some people may want diversity for diversity's sake and we need to be very careful because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a precious message that we must hold on to, that Jesus died for our sins, that he's a historical person that rose from the dead and it's the only hope of life for us or for anyone else to believe in this Jesus Christ. But we must fight to build bridges and we must lament where the bridges have been broken for reasons that are secondary to that. And I think that as a church, we can grow in that and lamenting and being sorrowful over where divisions have happened. Uh, the second thing that we can do uh, at a, out of that is pursue unity in the church, right? If we are not pursuing unity in the church, we are being offensive to Christ. It says that he died to reconcile groups together. Again, that might be race, that might be political, that might be who knows what that is. Where there are differences, Christ died to tear down those differences and to create deep fellowship between followers of Jesus. He died for that. If we are apathetic about it or if we are actively opposing it in certain ways, we do not want to do that. We are going to be hindering the cause of Christ. We're going to be hurting our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not uh, want to be offensive to Christ and what he came to accomplish, not just our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with others. We need to be actively pursuing unity in the church in all different numbers of areas. Second thing, though, in that is that it's going to be offensive to the world. There were so many times throughout the scripture that Jesus and the apostles, they uh, told us that the way the world was going to confirm the reality of our message of the, of the Messiah and of who Christ was is through the way that we have loving relationships with one another in the church. And if we don't have that unity, if we don't have those relationships, the self-sacrificial love and the unity across groups that's confusing to the world, then uh, it's going to make it harder for the lost world to believe in our message about the Messiah and what he has done for us by giving his life for us. Um, So we want to pursue unity in the church for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of one another, and for the sake of the world that is looking at us. And the last thing, uh, we need to uh, participate in gospel ministry. All right, participate in gospel ministry. Why I say that is because he said, he came and preached peace, right? Jesus' death did not magically snap his fingers and apply unity everywhere, but the way that unity and reconciliation with God and others is spread is through the proclamation of the message of peace, which is the gospel, And so the primary way, again, to achieve reconciliation is to proclaim this message of the gospel that we are far from God in our sin, but in love for us, he came and reconciled us to God. And in light of that, it is necessary that we give ourselves to loving and serving others, even who are very different uh, from us. This gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of peace, and we give ourselves to the advancement of this message of the gospel because we believe as God genuinely changes hearts through the preaching of the gospel, brings new people into his family, into his kingdom, into building his temple, then we can be reconciled to one another. And the vision for the church is this, that we would be a pocket, the church, 
God's people would be a pocket of surprising unity in the midst of a divided world. Right? That we would be a pocket of surprising unity in the midst of a divided world. Jesus is strong. He is powerful. His blood is full of power to unite us to God. We just cry out and cling to him by faith. It's granted to us. Uh, but it's also powerful to reconcile us with others. Those like us that we need to be reconciled to and those very, very different from us. Jesus is precious. He's powerful and he can accomplish this task. Um, pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he gave himself for us. We thank you that we are reconciled to you and that there is no animosity between us and you anymore because of what Jesus has done. We thank you that he lived a perfect life for us and gave us that perfect life through faith. Uh, We thank you that we have been born again into his family. God, we wish that our churches, your followers, were more deeply unified with one another. We look forward to the day when we will experience full unity in your presence when you return and you restore everything uh, to glory and satisfaction and peace as you desire it. Uh, But now, God, uh, we just confess that we wish things would be different here. We pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to engage in deep reconciliation with your people and that we as the church, as your followers, would love and would treasure you And that would move us to action to reconcile relationships with others. So God, we pray as a church, as a family, that you would make us a unified people and that you would show us how to walk in deep unity uh, with more and more of your people for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.